Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This episode of the Artelligence Podcast is a conversation between collector Pamela Joyner and Art News Editor-in-Chief Sarah Douglas. The conversation was held at the Court Club in September of 2019. So let me tell you a little bit about Pamela for those of you who aren't familiar with her. Um, She is an accomplished uh, businesswoman. Uh, She founded Avid Partners in 2000. Um, She holds an MBA from Harvard University. Um, I always like to say what people do besides they're an art collector um, because she is very accomplished professionally. Um, And she and her husband, um, Fred Guifrida, uh, began collecting um, specializing in African-American art, I believe in 1999. Correct. Is that right? That's correct. Um, and now own uh, over 300 works um, in, in that area. And as I mentioned, a book came out about the collection in 2016. Um, and then there's also been a traveling exhibition um, about her collection called Solidary and Solitary. Um, and that is, Vajra referred to the exhibition that's opening at the Baltimore Museum of Art. The reason that is so exciting is this exhibition, which has traveled. It was at the Smart Museum. It was at, at other venues. It's been at five it's museums. It's been at five museums. Yeah. And it's opening in an expanded form in Baltimore um, with works from the museum's collection and also some works that are loaned from, from another collection, the Rennie Collection. Um, and she is also on the board of the Tate on numerous boards, um, and most recently, I think we can say most recently, um, in September 2017, um, joined the board of the Getty um, and has been instrumental in the new initiative uh, although my understanding is they had the idea for it before they you did, joined they the board. They really did have you the have idea. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and has been, um, the, the Getty has an amazing um, initiative it's working on now in terms of um, bringing more research and scholarship around African-American art, um, which is very, very much needed. Um, and so I, I want to talk with, with Pamela um, about a number of these things and, and hear in her own words um, about them. So I, I do want to start with, with the exhibition, since it's opening on Thursday. Yes. And, and one thing I, I also want to mention is she focuses on uh, abstraction by African-American artists, which is um, really an area um, that I think before there was so much attention to her collection um, was was not as appreciated as, as it could have been. So let me have you talk about the exhibition a little bit. Um, well, I mean, like you say, it's been a labor of a long labor and a labor of love. Uh, we did start with the um, um, exhibition in 2017. Uh, and this iteration actually has a new title at the Baltimore Museum of Art. It's called Generations, and that was sort of designed to dovetail with our book, which is called Four Generations. Um, and um, so that book also has been expanded from five pounds to about eight pounds, uh, and we have commissioned 25 writers from most of the major museums uh, in the world to write about one subject or another. And all of this really evolved from, um, you know, our thinking that artists of color have really been excluded uh, uh, from the canon or overlooked in the context of the canon 
because they didn't have sort of three critical elements consistently um, that were, uh, that really characterize successful artistic careers. So first you have to have the scholarship and the critical acclaim. So our book is not a scholarly book, but a lot of scholars wrote for it. And so the mission of, of the collection is um, really to be a catalyst to alter the canon so that it reflects the reality, the truth. Um, doesn't force feed uh, certain people into the narrative, but that it reflects the truth of what's gone on in our history. And the truth is that artists of color were excluded. So you have to have had the critical claim and the curatorial interest. Uh, then, uh, for lack of a more elegant way to put it, the distribution channel um, is um, a critical element as well. And we were talking before um, everybody gathered about you know, galleries, and I'm one that believes that galleries do play a critical role. You know, some are more positive influences than others, which is true of every aspect of life, but um, you know, I think that they are you know, important to an artist's success. And then finally, what comes from that is uh, the collectors. It does matter which artists are in which collections. Um, so that's sort of how we come to it from a conceptual framework. Um, and the, the exhibition really came out of the book, which was you know, designed to be corrective. Uh, and I mean, it was really, you know, like a lot of things in life, it was a little circumstantial. Um, I was looking for a publisher, and you know, I talked to various people, and you know, one, it's it's wonderful that we wound up with Greg Miller, who was you know willing to take the risk and work collaboratively with us to build you know a book that was important to us. Um, but one publisher we talked to said, "Well, we really can't get our brain around the book because there's not." a significant show associated with this. I was sitting with a friend who have, at that time happened to be the chair of the board of the Ogden Museum, and she said, we'll take the show, because what we can't do is produce a book of the you know, heft that you are, are doing, uh, but we know how to do the show. Um, and then that sort of snowballed, um, in no small part due to Chris Bedford and Katie Siegel, uh, who are the curators of the show. I mean, they are... They're brilliant uh, across... And they're at Baltimore. And they're at, they're at Baltimore, but, you know, they are, you know, they're brilliant um, curators uh, with, you know, global reputations. And so uh, they really were the magnet uh, that uh, created a situation where, you know, five or six museums took an interest in the show. And um, I should say, um, Pamela, you have referred to yourself as an activist collector, um, and I, I think um, you've talked about really your goal being um, to not be the end, but rather the, the beginning of something and the, the inspiration for others. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, yes. So, um, you know, I am an activist. We do have um, a mission statement for the collection, because uh, I'm an MBA, we put together an annual strategy. We put together an execution plan. Um, and, you know, the execution plan is really designed to keep me on some sort of budget. But I must say that, you know, I tend to breach that more regularly than I should admit. Um, uh, you know, and so that's all that's all all part of what we do. Um, and then um, so 
Sarah, you mentioned the, the boards that I'm involved in. So I really view my role on these various boards as one where I ask really one question, which is, have you considered? And you can then fill in the blank. Have you considered this show? Have you considered this acquisition? Have you considered this initiative? Have you considered, you know, this curatorial, you know, approach? Um, and in this environment, I'm really thrilled uh, to, to report that the institutions that we, you know, closely affiliate with when we ask the question of have you considered, you know, robust minds can consider the question uh, and come up with some constructive and productive answers that I think are history altering. And actually, I, I want to just pause there for a moment um, just to talk about your, I think it's so interesting, your philosophy about joining boards in general. As you've said, you know, I'll go, I'll go on a board if there is a need for what I bring there. If I have a particular um, something I can bring to this board. So you're not kind of arbitrarily joining boards. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I'm even much more rude than that. Um, <laughs> I need, uh, and reductive, I need a job description. And the job description has to be one where almost no one else can do the job, right? We all want that in our, you know, however we uh, configure our professional or avocational endeavors. We want to make a difference. Um, and... Um, you know, the most recent board I went on uh, was the, the Getty Museum and, or the Getty Trust, which is a, more than a museum. It's actually four different arms. Um, and I just couldn't imagine a scenario whereby the Getty could construct a job description that fit my skill set. Uh, and they came to me with quite a specific plan. Um, but they, what they needed was some execution help. Really, um, and you know, and this is for their African American Art Initiative. Now, of course, you know, when you're on a board, you do all the things the fiduciaries do for the institution across the institution. Um, but this was a place where I had a passion, where I felt I had some expertise, where I had a network that I could help the organization with. And sort of once I helped them organize the outline, it's amazing the extent to which they run with it, and how fast a group of, you know, really intense PhDs ran with it. So that's all pretty rewarding. So I, I want to talk about one one more aspect of your collecting and, and sort of your long-term plan for the collection that I think is really important, um, which is, I mean, to, to reference back to our top 200 collectors issue, um, every year we look at it and we say, okay, who's opening a private museum this year? You know, and, and it, the list goes on, you know, and, and you have been um, quite clear in saying that's not your intention, um, that you you have made donations to, to museums and you plan to continue to see that your work goes to, to institutions. Um, I think what, you know, some of the collectors who open private museums would say, you know, your work's going to go in storage. It'll never be seen. Wait, you know, what's your response to that? It hasn't been my experience so far, um, and I think that that's true because um, I try to work collaboratively with the directors and the curators at the museums to which we make donations so that I have an idea of how the contribution is going to be activated. Um, so, you know, I, if I use Tate as an example, we gave a very large Sam Gilliam drape to Tate that's been, you know, on the road for two years. Uh, at their landmark Sullivanation um, exhibition. 
Uh, we gave a large, the I think, the Astor's largest hose piece uh, to Tate, and it's never come down. Um, there have been other gifts we've given to the SF MoMA that have been up since their since um, the inception of the gift, and so um, and it's interesting the way that SF MoMA makes those gifts dialogue with the rest of the collection, uh, which is something I can't do in my own home, uh, and so you know I think that that's just a function of sitting down with an organization and coming to a meeting of the minds, comparing their objectives and, and their strategy versus your intent. Now, you know, this is a little risky, right? Because I'm not going to be here forever and the people with whom I've developed this understanding are not going to be here forever. We also don't put a lot of constraints on these gifts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because I really would like, you know, people who I have a lot of confidence in to use their professional skills to tell new stories. And so far it's worked, but it is, you know, it, it is a little risky. Well, I think that the, the aspect of that, that, and I, I heard you talk about this in Chicago last week, and I thought it was so interesting is, you know, when you look at the book of your collection, um, you're looking at a, a certain history, right? But um, you talked about, you know, inserting that history into the wider history of art, right? So if you see the artists in your collection, which goes back to the 1950s, amongst their peers, um, that's, and it, you, you were sort of saying that's very important to you. Well, that's, that is the whole purpose of um, our approach to the collection. And um, it's certainly been the case that when we make gifts, all of these curators have told the story in that way. They insert uh, those stories into the full context of what else is uh, present in, in the museum. Um, because we do believe that you know, a racialized lens through which to view art is an inaccurate one. Um, and so people say, well, you know, you've got this collection, it's a group, it's mostly a black group. Um, and all of that happens to be the case, but we are making the activist proposition uh, that the ecosystem should um, not foreground the maker's race in consideration of the efficacy of, um, you know, the output of the maker. And actually this, um, we, we were actually talking about this just before um, the panel began, and I, I was talking with Pamela about... Um, you know, Carrie James Marshall, she owns some of his work, who is, of course, you know... A Not enough. Okay. Uh, who, who is, of course, a, a figurative artist um, and who has spoken a great deal about the need for people, you know, let's say anyone, but particularly, I think, children, um, to see themselves on the walls of the museum. And I think when Carrie says that, um, the most obvious interpretation of what he's saying is to literally see black figures on the walls. Of course, the other aspect of it is to see African-American artists on the walls. Um, and I said to Pamela before we started, I said, um, you know, if I go to a museum and I, I look at, you know, an abstract painting and I go and I look and I see, um, you know, or, or a sculpture and I see it, you know, it's by a woman artist, and the name tells me that, right, in most cases. Um, and I said to Pamela, do you think it's important for a museum to say on the wall label, 
this is an African-American artist, which you might not get from the name if you were a, you know, a kid. And I'll let you answer that. So I would not suggest that labeling be done in that way because, you know, again, our interest is in freedom of choice. So real freedom, real liberation, real social justice is to let creatives create what they're compelled to create. Uh, and for instance, I mean, so the way we got to an interest in abstraction was really thinking about an art history whereby in the post-World War II, um, the art world really expected African-American artists to depict identifiably black subject matter. Similarly, you know, this is during the civil rights movement, the dawn of the civil rights movement, the African-American community understandably expected artists to be part of the struggle and create images of black uplift. And Charles White is a very good example And Charles of that. White, Carrie James Marshall's teacher, mm -hmm. is a very good example of that. Um, but there are a group of artists, Norman Lewis and Alma Thomas, who has a beautiful show at the Mnuchin Gallery now, uh, Sam Gilliam, Jack Whitten, um, proposed that they were universalists, that they were artists, that they were creating art for the sake of creating art. And my support of that narrative has to do with my belief that artists should have the flexibility of doing that. Um, and ultimately, we all as a society benefit because art is one of the most important things that remind us of the things we have in common, right? That remind us of our humanity, uh, of our commonality. Uh, and so the ultimate statement of freedom uh, is to be able to do what it is you want to do. When my mother was alive, she said to me, you know, you collect abstract art because these were mostly guys um, doing what they weren't supposed to do, and you yourself have a long history of that. So in that respect, <laughs> the collection is autobiographical. Um, but um, I just think it's so very important for people to have that personal and artistic freedom. Well, so I, I want to come back for a moment to the example of, you know, a kid who comes into the museum and sees that wall label um, ultimately, you know, you were saying to me, well, the same kid might see a Mondrian and say, that's a Mondrian, you know, but might not know Sam Gilliam by his style alone. Well, right? yep. And, and I want to use that as a, as a segue into um, another project that you have, which is an important part of what you're doing now, which is your artist residency. And, and maybe we can use that as an entry point into what is often referred to as the pipeline problem. Um, meaning when you look at, um, you know, real positions of, of power in, in the art world, a significant curatorships and so forth, you know, you have institutions saying, well, um, I looked at all the candidates. Of course, I want to, you know, have a diverse staff, but we have a pipeline issue. Well, you know, yes. I mean, this is, I mean, this is absolutely an, an issue. So the Back to your, you know, kid in the wall label question. Um, that is the an issue created by art history and art historians. Absolutely. So the fact that Sam Gilliam is less recognizable than Mondrian is a function of Sam Gilliam not being in the history books. Um, so so that that encapsulates the the notion of of a pipeline problem. Um, so, I mean, I think the pipeline problem exists. It's a multifaceted and a complex problem. One thing we are trying to do, set, do with our residency, so the vast majority of people who come to the residency, um, we have a, a residency 
outside of San Francisco, um, about an hour north in Sonoma County. And artists come, and there really are no requirements. Uh, and they can make if they want to. They can present art if they want to. Or they can drink a lot of good wine if they want to. It's just whatever, whatever they want to do. Uh, but about a quarter of the people who come to the residency are scholars. In fact, the next person, and I've got to make sure I've got her plane ticket arranged even this afternoon, um, is um, a working curator at a museum who just needs, you know, some time to sit down and write. And so we are wanting to encourage um, curators of color to come into the field, not necessarily to be focused on artists of color, because that creates another set of issues. Um, we don't want to discourage it, but we don't necessarily want to require that you fit into that niche, just like we don't want to focus on artists that have to fit into, you know, one niche or another uh, with no alternatives uh, available to them. Um, and so, sort of, I, I think our next project after we finish working on, you know, the show and the book will be to focus in a little bit more um, fulsome way on addressing this pipeline problem, but we are doing it on a preliminary basis through the residency. And, uh, you know, before we, we came up here, we were talking about, you know, the role of the university gallery, for instance, in, the, in that system of, you know, can there be, you just had the exhibition at the, the SMART Museum. Yes. Um, can there be more of a dialogue, you know, between the art history department, the museum, and, you know, using that as an entry point? Well, that actually was, it has been one of the most encouraging learnings we've had out of touring our collection around. So we started uh, focused on um, uh, university museums. So the Ogden is actually a university museum. Then we went from the Ogden to the Nasher at Duke University, from Duke to Notre Dame, uh, the Snipe Museum, then to the Smart Museum. Now we're on to, you know, more urban museums at, at Baltimore. <laughs> And uh, it was really um, encouraging to see scholars like Rick Powell and Darby English and others write curriculum around the show. Um, it was really wonderful to see undergraduate docents uh, who weren't necessarily even art history majors. Some were, some weren't. Um, touring, um, um, you know, attendees through the show. Uh, and then in Notre, at Notre Dame in particular, the s scholars in other departments incorporated art into the teaching. So the mathematicians, for instance, taught a module on Charles Gaines, who makes, um, you know, these works uh, on a, you know, that really, um, you know, digital before the digital age, they're sort of mathematically constructed. Um, and so... I mean, that was rewarding because I'm one who believes art is life. I mean, it's part of life, and it's part of uh, cultural literacy. Um, and it doesn't matter what discipline uh, you're focused in, in in school. So so hopefully, and, and, you know, we met a lot of undergraduates and graduate students um, who said that, you know, they were inspired by the work that the, the museums we're doing. Um, and you know, these are all places, uh, and I would point particularly to the University of Chicago. I'm biased because I was born on that campus. My dad went to the University of Chicago. I grew up in that neighborhood. Um, but one thing they don't have is a shortage of renowned scholars. And so um, certain siloed walls came down in that interaction because the art historians tend to be 
in their pod and the museum curators tend to be in their pod in you know many of these environments and there was um, we saw a lot of cross fertilization and collaboration going on between the art historians and the curators and it was really rewarding to watch so I, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to um, talk about actually the work in, in her collection and um, and hear a, a little bit about um, how it evolved um, and so I'm going to ask you the most boring and obvious question. Um, what, what did you start? Do you remember what the first work you acquired was? Do you, what, you know, or what artist you started with? What kind of jump started this? Um, you know, I very often talk about Laurie Sims as being someone I met when I was in business school who encouraged me and others uh, to collect and, and, and her legacy in that regard is everywhere. I can name you lists of collectors all over New York who uh, have been inspired by Lowry. Um, and so uh, I, I probably did something really safe, like by Jacob Lawrence. Um, but not so long after, I bought uh, and met Richard Mayhew. Uh, and Richard is probably, I think, the sole remaining, no, there are two remaining members of the Spiral Collective, which was a collective of African-American artists formulated in 1960 uh, that would meet um, weekly in Romare Bearden's downtown studio. So Richard and Emma Amos are the two artists. Uh, there were 15 artists in that collective, 14 men and one woman apropos to the time. Uh, and Richard um, had the good fortune of being sort of more uh, commercially successful and critically acclaimed than many of his peers, but still had, um, you know, great obstacles to overcome. He, in turn, was mentored by Norman Lewis, who uh, also had critical acclaim, but great had faced great obstacles to overcome. And so that was really... So understanding that history and that story was the genesis of a collection that evolved to be an activist collection focused on... Um, getting justice uh, for artists who had that experience early in their career. So I would say up until almost this point, the focal point of the collection and the strongest part of the collection has been those artists born between, I'd say, 1930 and 1947, 48. Um, and those works are really all abstract. Um, but we've gotten really interested in large part as a result of not only what's happening in the art ecosystem, but just getting to know a number of these young artists uh, at our residency. We've gotten really interested in artists born in the 1980s and forward. Um, I mean, they're just remarkable human beings. Um, many of them are very influenced and very aware of the legacy that um, is um, resident in our collection. Uh, can you, can and, uh, you give us a few names? We, you know, Kevin, Kevin Beasley's been to the residence maybe three times. Fiorelle Baez was just there, and we, I don't know how many of you saw her show at Jim Cohan. There was this mm. wonderful installation, which we bought, and for the first time, this is a real walk on the wild side, I emptied the furniture in my library and installed that installation. And so that now is unleashing me to solve... Um, some other problems um, that we um, see in the ecosystem because I don't think we need a museum uh, to um, um, work with curatorial talent 
in real time on site doing installation. So now I feel unleashed um, um, to remove all the furniture in my home and turn it into. <laughs> my husband said, "Just please leave one chair for me to sit in." Um, um, so we, you know, um, um, who else? Um, Firelies have been there twice this summer, and Jordan Castile's another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're really inspired by all these young artists. So would, would you, you know, I, I really think of your collection as a collection of abstraction. Was it, was there a certain point where you said, okay, we're going to bring figuration in, or or was it always uh, happening? You know, my view is I'm I'm not a museum. I made the rules and I can break them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it's always really been happening. I yeah. mean, we started buying Lynette Yadimboachi mm-hmm. a decade ago, um, and it's really just and and then and now I would make the case that she is an abstract painter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my husband's unconvinced, but but I, <laughs> I would I would make that case. Um, and so there's there's always talent that you come across, and so I'm mm. just not able to to resist it uh, when I do find that. And and do you it, do you and your husband make these decisions to get? I mean, you, the two of you were on the panel in Chicago together, so that was a, a bit of a different vibe. Um, so do do you always make the decisions together? Are there some artists that you know you're acquiring and some that he's acquiring? I mean, how does it work? Well, it, when it works. Most efficiently, I'm, you know, I'm sort of in charge of the acquisitions, and he's more in charge because he's a lawyer by training uh, of the deacquisitions, um, the the gifts, and you know, folding right. that into our estate planning. Um, but he's relatively new to his enthusiasm for sort of this whole endeavor, uh, so he's been wonderfully supportive of it. Um, but really didn't get very involved, I think really until we started the residency in 2014. Uh, because as we got to know the artist, that put a whole nother light mm-hmm. uh, on this this effort. So it is a much more collaborative effort. I really do bounce most of the, the ideas off of him. And uh, sometimes he feels strongly about them. Uh, and um, sometimes I ignore that and do it anyway, uh, but not usually, um, because he, he really is a good good student, like all collectors. I mean, collectors are learners and students, uh, and he's a really good student of the art, and so he's developed a terrific eye. So I'd really like to know, um, because I, I do want to leave some time. I'm sure people have, have questions for Pamela. Um, uh, you, we were talking you know, before... Um, and I was really struck, you mentioned um, a particular moment with an artist where it was so gratifying to see them achieve success and recognition. And given, you know, you talked about the, the um, generation of artists that your collection has been especially focused in, and these are artists who I would say are in the late stages of their careers. Can, can you tell me about, um, you know, what it's like to... to I assume you know, you know, some of the artists in the collection and to, to see them achieve this recognition, partly as a result of, of your efforts. Well, you, we try to know everyone in the collection that we can, um, but, the you know, the earlier generations, these artists who are in their 70s and 80s and, in some cases, 90s. I mean, we, you know, we own Ed Clark and Richard Mayhew. Uh, Richard Mayhew just celebrated his 95th birthday, 
wow. and he still drives and makes art every day. <laughs> so, so no, it's really gratifying um, to you know watch this group of people who you know when there was no possibility to be rewarded for making particularly abstraction. They just did it because they were compelled to do it, right? Because they were creatives compelled to do it. And to watch people, you know, get the solo shows that, I mean, and Jack Whitten passed away um, right before his um, Met show opened. But he was involved in every aspect of the planning and Mm -hmm. he knew it was happening and was really gratified by it. Uh, and it joined Hauser and Worth a few years earlier. Uh, and that process did shine a light on the career. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to put into words to see, you know, many, many of these of these, um, you know, these great talents and these transformational artists uh, finally be recognized by by the art world. Well, I'd like to, to open it up to questions. Um, does anyone in the audience, we can pass you the mic. Hello again. Um, Hi. I, I had the pleasure of uh, getting to see uh, you guys in Chicago as well. Um, and I wanted to uh, ask a, a, a little follow-up to that discussion. Um, I, I think it's really a, bre- a, a breath of fresh air, the way that you guys collect and, and how a lot of uh, collectors will lend an artwork to a museum to increase the provenance of the artwork, to increase its value potentially or whatever. And I heard you and your husband say in Chicago that when you lend something, you, you, you look you look to find you know your favorite artwork. You don't lend it, but you give it. Um, how do you make that choice? Obviously, to, to 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 take your favorite artwork in a collection, in your collection, and give it away. Um, what's behind that? Um, because it belonged in a major museum. Um, and it belonged in a major museum to tell the story of, um, and the work we're talking about is that huge Sam Gilliam drape. I knew Tate would take really good care of it. Um, the uh, curator who did the Soul of a Nation show uh, has written very extensively, not only on Sam, but that generation of African-American artists uh, in our collection and beyond. Um, so, for instance, the Tate acquired a very major Kerry James Marshall recently, and this particular curator spearheaded um, that process. Um, Mark Goffrey's a great scholar, um, and that's what should have happened to that work. Um, and it has a good home. We, we know where to go find it when we need to sit with it. So that's how we decided. I mean, I think that that brings up the, the, the idea that, you know, we tend to think of collectors as, you know, sometimes... Oh, you know, that's that works final resting place. But in fact, collectors are stewards of art and, you know, the art will be around after them. And I think there's the question of, you know, is is there a sense of responsibility to, to the object? We take that this notion of stewardship very, very seriously, which is why we are spending time uh, at this stage in life. Hopefully we'll have many, many, many more years to plan um, uh, but um, the art won't belong to us forever. And so uh, we're trying to place it 
in places and in ways so that it's optimized. Um, we think about which museums have what kind of needs. Um, we're really in the process over the next year of planning what for us will be some major gifts. Um, and we've, we've been working very closely uh, with a couple of different museums uh, to make sure that uh, we put this work in a context that best serves the museum, that best serves the artist's legacies, and that um, pushes the telling of art history forward in a way that that kid will be able to read about it in the art history books before they go to the museum. Right. So they will know that this is an Ed Clark, although it's not obvious that he's an African-American artist. Does anyone else have a question? Over here. Thank you for sharing this insight. Um, you gave a little teaser about how you also approach art as a business, and I wonder if you could elaborate a little further. It's really interesting to hear about how you think about collecting and the crossroads between that and philanthropy, and also curious about the business side of things, perhaps the investment side of things, if you could just comment a little further. Well, we don't buy art as investment. <laughs> so what I do is I take my business training and use it as an organizing principle around um, optimizing our resources uh, to create a collection that we hope to tell, that t tells a story uh, and that we hope uh, advances an artistic legacy. Um, and so... Um, you know, I very often say there, to that end, there's a, there are a lot of things I don't do. Um, and so from a philanthropic point of view, what we really love to do is to donate work. Uh, and that is not to diminish the importance of building buildings to show art in, or supporting shows, uh, or supporting programming. Uh, but we like to support the pictures on the walls because that is what is permanent. Um, and so also, that one, one thing we learned, say, with this earlier generation of artists, there was a moment in the early 1970s, late 1960s, where many of the New York museums in particular were doing shows focused on African-American artists. But those shows did not materially advance the conversation because there was no publication around those yeah. shows. And so what I learned was that if a book didn't exist, for all practical purposes, the show didn't exist. So very often when people come to me and ask me to support shows, what I, if one, there has to be an artist that is in the collection who we're already supporting. Uh, but I say, what I say is, you know, I don't want to write a check into the ether. What I'll support is the publication. I hope you are very proud of yourself because you are doing an amazing difference in this field as someone that works with the artists and especially youth. Um, youth are marching on. They demand someone to listen to them. And I wonder whether you have a plan for not the artists, but the artists to be, the future artists, youth that need a little more guidance, a little more investment in them, a little more educational aspects that are not seen in schools or anywhere else. And sometimes they 
can't even go to a museum? So we certainly care about those issues. Um, and the way we, but, but it is not a, it's not a true focus of our everyday effort. The way we come at that is to try to support museums who are really good uh, in that particular area. And I would point to not only the Getty, but the Art Institute of Chicago. And I mean, for over a century, the Art Institute of Chicago has um, done an excellent job of reaching out into its community uh, and making um, uh, the work accessible. And I actually would point to myself as the poster child for that. Um, you know, I'm old enough to have grown up at a time in Chicago when that museum was free. Um, and it's important to just have unfettered access to 5,000 years worth of culture. Um, and so, uh, you know, we continue to, to support those efforts on an ongoing basis. I think we will, um, oh, we can take one more, okay, as long as we, you're in charge of the time. <laughs> Thanks, Pamela. I think the deliberateness and the strategy around what you're doing this is, like, so admirable, and I'm wondering, I'm sure a lot of collectors come to you for advice on how to make this practice kind of a more historically significant one, so to speak, right, in that you're rewriting art history through the art of your collecting, and I'm wondering... Are there other people you know who are perhaps doing this in either other pockets of art history that might be overlooked? Basically, are there any folks out there doing what you're doing, but perhaps for another group of artists that you've come across? Well, I mean, there, there really are, uh, and there have been uh, for a long number of years. I mean, so the focus on African-American art is did, did not begin with us. I mean, as I mentioned, I grew up in a community in Chicago where two generations of people had been collecting African-American art. I mean, really, the only support that that community found, the art community found, was African-American collectors. Um, but look at the collectors, say, of Latin American art, and I would point to Patty Cisneros. Uh, she really has changed the game. Uh, and she also, you know, went sort of back in time to look at, um, you know, a historical post-World War II canon that was, you know, not well known. Uh, I would point to my dear friend Carmel Shaw uh, at the San Francisco MoMA who focuses on women uh, who, you know, are truly underrepresented uh, throughout museum collections, and there are a number of collectors focusing there. In recent years, we've started to internationalize our collection, and um, I've developed a particular enthusiasm for South African artist uh, as well. And you might have seen on the screen uh, a drawing by William Kentridge. Uh, and that, again, furthers my, you know, conviction that race is not the filter through which we should be viewing art, because William Kentridge is certainly more African than I am. Um, but you can't understand South African modernism unless you unpack William and his uh, stellar career. So I think there are all sorts of ways to slice this, I think, you, you know, what advice, I mean, you know, I mean, who am I to advise, but I, I, what one thing we found rewarding is to find a story about which we have a passion and to focus on that story and to try to tell that story enthusiastically and passionately and, you know, in a multifaceted, nuanced way. Uh, now, you know, you can wind up adding a lot of extra projects to your life doing that. I didn't think I'd be, you know, running a house uh, for, for artists. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, it's something that really enhances our lives and enhances our ability to tell the story. Um, and so, I mean, we've been open to all of that, and we see there's lots of people in the ecosystem doing that. We're lucky because we do have a focus. If I had to collect the whole of global contemporary art, uh, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning uh, because I couldn't make a decision. Um, but, um, you know, we, we um, love what we do. To, to, just to, to continue on that question, do you think that in general there is more maybe what we might call mission-based collecting, um, like over the course of forming your collection, do you see more people doing that? I absolutely do, but I think we're becoming a more mission-based society. I mean, the, the, the mention of young people who must be heard, um, you know, and a, a, a lot of the issues around which they must be heard uh, have to do with issues of, you know, morality and justice. And so, you know, the good news is a lot of people are on a, on a mission, whatever that mission is. So I think that's a nice note to end on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 